station, but we're here for a real education. Welcome to A Real Education. I'm your host, Tim Wick. I am joined, as always, by my co-host, movie monarch, Melissa Kersher. Hello! And uh, we are joined by our uh, uh, esteemed guest, uh, movie native tribe, uh, Bob <laughs> Bob Alberti. Hey! <laughs> and uh, Bob, of course, is our, he's our, what do we want to say, our movie guinea pig. He is yes. our, he is our noob. Uh, although some of these movies I've not seen, some of the movies Melissa has not seen, the one mm-hmm. thing that we have to make sure of is we have a guest who has not seen the film we are about to watch. And that is true of Bob, who has not seen The Man Who Would Be King, which is what we are about to watch. So, Bob, tell us, what do you know about The Man Who Would Be King? When I mentioned the title to my spouse, she said, oh, that's the one with Sean Connery and Michael Caine. And that's what I know about The Man Who Would Be King. Sweet. The Man Who Would Be King... Features Sean Connery Sean and Michael Connery Caine. And Michael Caine. I'm kind of amused. I think, yes, this this has Sean Connery. And, and I, we haven't done a Connery Bond. Is this the yeah. first time we've had Sean Connery? I no, we did, so. we did We did. We uh, did. Uh, Murder on the Orient Express. Oh, you're right. So it is our second Sean Connery, and yet we still have not done uh, Goldfinger, which we will have to do. Yeah, we'll have to do at least one Bond. I think, yeah. Ma- maybe we need to do a series of, like... One of each of the bonds. That would, yes, that would a be a sampler good, set. That would be a good series. Uh, they, we'd have to find somebody to to debate the merits of Timothy Dalton. Uh, oh, I can debate the merits of Timothy Dalton. Well, so can I. But I anyway, can. so we're getting totally off track. So yeah. <laughs> the point is, Bob, you know nothing about the man who would be king. I know one more thing, and oh. that was that when I mentioned this to my friend Valerie, she said, when Sean Connery and Michael Caine were filming this in Morocco. They could not dance with women, and so they danced with each other in the bars. All right. so That is part of my headcanon now. I like it. There you go. That's good. That's uh, trivia that Melissa will not share with us later in the podcast. <laughs> so well done, Bob, for stealing some of Melissa's uh, thunder. I have like eight pages of trivia. For yeah, I'm, yeah, yeah. there's there's plenty of thunder to there's go a, There's around. a lot to talk about in this movie. So I guess the basics on this film, uh, it is based on a story by Richard Kipling. Mm-hmm. And uh, it is, it's a good adaptation of the story, I think. Yeah, it's um, pretty good. There are a few differences just to adapt it to a movie. And, you know, it, they're not terribly major. Mm-mm. Yeah, I mean, we can get into that later. But yeah, we'll get into that later. Uh, the, the story is one of the short stories that appears in, I think it's a collection called the, um, I think it's the Ghostly Rickshaw and Other Tales. I can't remember exactly Oh, this, the is, is. this is based on Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep? Is that it? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. No. Mm-hmm. By no. Richard Kipling. By, by Richard, by Richard Kipling. Kipling. <laughs> That's a very different version of that story. <laughs> 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 no, the, the Ghostly Ricochet and other tales were uh, are just a series of short stories set in India, and uh, this is one of the longer ones. Uh, it's like long enough to um, qualify as a novella, so there's a lot of meat in the story. And. Uh, yeah, it's it's a fun adventure film. It was made in 1975, and uh, yeah, it Sean oh. Connery and Michael Caine. I know another thing about this movie. Yes. It's oh. an adventure film. It is an adventure. Ha ha! I just Ha-ha! learned that. Yes, yes. You are listening. Yes. You're listening, but we will we will keep uh, the rest of the information about this film to ourselves mm-hmm. because we want uh, Bob to watch the movie as we like to say unspoiled. Yes. So uh, we are going to head off. We're going to watch The Man Who Would Be King. We hope that you do the same, and we'll be back in a short while. The boy, boy, to the, war, to the 
And we are back. Much pride has goneth before a fall. Many mountains, many, many snowy mountains have been traversed with nary a hobbit in sight. And it is time to find out what Bob thought of the man who would be king. So, Bob, your first viewing of the man who would be king. What did you think about this film? It was very Kipling. <laughs> uh, it was really, really British. Uh Um, Which is another way of saying it was very Kipling. Yeah, yeah. Um, I found it entertaining, uh, a little little sad, Mm -hmm. you know, um, in in that way. Um, And um, very much a product of both uh, Kipling's time and the 70s themselves. Um, I was fascinated that, that the ethos of the film seemed to be racism's perfectly good but don't get above your station <laughs> that sounds a lot like Kipling yeah, uh, yeah. That's, that's what I mean by it's very Kipling yeah, it's, just, it's so it's, Kipling it, it, it's just like oh yeah it, it's fine to, to hornswoggle the wogs but don't go thinking that you're not a cockney you know street fellow who you know can become a king because that's just not done <laughs> Yeah, the minute you start thinking that you can stand up in front of the queen, that's mm-hmm. that's the moment at that's... which you've you've gone you've gone a, a step too far. Precisely, precisely. Saying that you're a god is fine, mm-hmm. but saying that you're on you're going to be on par with the queen. Mm-mm. Don't do that. Nope. No, nope. no, because nope. look what happened to this guy. <laughs> <laughs> I I also like I also like a caper movie in which the entire thing can be unraveled if you nick yourself shaving. Yeah, it's great, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> I, ho- I hope that there's like a spoiler warning on this because I don't want to like. You know. Oh yeah, it's it's assumed uh, that we yeah. go full spoiler. Yeah, yeah. we point yeah. out we point out we talk about the movie after the break. Yeah, you know, if, if yeah. you've made it this far and you didn't watch the movie, then you you know you yeah, deserve you to know who Kaiser Soze is. <laughs> and, and there you know there's a certain I think I don't know what the window is, but there's a certain point after which it's okay to say Rosebud is a sled and Darth Vader is Luke's father. And I don't yeah. know if that's a year well, or ten years or something, but this movie's clearly past all of it. Yeah, this, so, this yeah. movie is as old as I am, which is 41 years old, and then the story was older than that. So, because yep. math. And uh, I, so I figure, you know, at least is, a year older. At the least, story is at least, least a year well, older. Well, Kipling died in the thirties, so at least uh, ten years older. Yes. <laughs> yep. Depending on who is ghostwriting for Kipling in those intervening years. <laughs> That's right. Christopher Kipling. Christian <laughs> Mark. Uh, yeah, I mean, there's a lot to be said about this movie, and uh, I believe Melissa has about 25 pages oh, God, of yeah. notes well, uh, and details. Well, you know, I, I, although I want to kind of go into the kind of discussion of, of kind of the social implications of this movie, since sure. we're already on that. Yeah. I find this film fascinating because, you know, obviously, I, I've read the story, and I... I, I really do truly enjoy this film because it's like you know, these the these callous rogues and awful who are awful awful people. They really I are. They're I mean, charming. The one the one you know, Michael Caine's a pickpocket, but at <laughs> least he returns it to Mason. Well, see, well it's that's, masonry. That's, they, they establish early on that he's a rogue, but he's got a code. Yes, right? and so that's yeah. that's important. You know? that's very important. You know, because stuff has to have order because this is right. British. Right. But it's lawful evil. But I, <laughs> I think there's a maybe it, lawful neutral. <laughs> maybe lawful neutral. Yeah. yeah, that's true. I mean, it's it, it's so interesting to me that there's 
you know, first of all, you've got the layer of Kipling, which is which is fascinating because he had this love and appreciation and fascination with Indian culture and other cultures in general. Um, and yet he was very much a British conservative and he was very much sold on the social order of British news. He, so, he, he, he was sold white. on British superiority. Yeah, mm -hmm. British yep. superiority. But yet, you know, he's like if he 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 also wrote, you know, Gunga Dean, where, mm -hmm. you know, there's you know, which is a story all about, you know, praising this one one uh, character who is not white. Right. It, but who Except who, who is very he noble. dies in the service of of the British people. Army. Akin to. Yeah. Yeah. A akin to our friend in the film, who's a the translator. Exactly. A, the translator. Billy Fish. <laughs> because his place is to die for his superiors. Yeah. Simple as that. He knew it. Or, or right? even the guy in the train that, you know, came... <laughs> Thank you, sir. Thank you, sir. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> and, and it's... So it's this... This really potent, but, but completely not disguised view racism yeah. in the Kipling stories and yet there's a weird sort of respect coming from it as well and he's one of the few people who is really documenting what was going on in British imperialism in yep. India at the time and so there's kind of a weird honesty to you know to his prose and you know he's a fascinating writer in that you know a lot of writers at the time were fairly purple in their prose and Kipling was like you know just has just kind of a snappy style to him. And so he's, if you can get past the obvious racism of his stories, the the adventure elements mm -hmm. are really fun to appreciate. And so you update it into the 70s and you make this movie and it becomes, I, I feel like there's a lot of like postmodern ways you can read this movie, even though they might not necessarily be what was intended in the time. Mm -hmm. Because you can also read into the... You know, Hubris ultimately brings the downfall of these two guys, but it's this woman who doesn't even have a line in the film, who all she does is bite him. You know, she she has the gumption to bite the man on the cheek right. when she's close to him mm -hmm. because she's scared, and it brings down the entire empire. It brings right. down the entire house of cards. And there's also the... And it's the hubris that they bring into it of we are better than these people we can bring order to these people or we can we're going to come in and rule these people but they get you know torn limb from limb eventually well, I mean, and and you know their their training and their whiteness and their uh their britishness is not going to save them mm -hmm. so i mean i mean so there's all that would, have, all that would have saved them was leaving a day earlier. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Dumbasses. Or sticking to their contract. Yeah. yeah. Because if he'd just not gone for the girl. Yes. Yeah. Right. Right. <laughs> Which is kind of creepy was, in its own way. This but. is basically a story about the importance of contract law. <laughs> yes. It's really, when it comes down yes. to it, this is, this is a tort lesson. Yeah. Yeah. Yes, you need torts. to honor your contract. You need to honor your contract. They, they signed a contract. <laughs> yeah. Michael Caine kept his part of the contract, and his only mistake was sticking around for the wedding. Right. Yes. Because if he hadn't, he'd have been over that hill with half a fortune. Yep. And they yeah. wouldn't have given a shit. Right. They didn't give they a didn't shit about care. the fortune. Nope. nope. 
Because what are they going to do with it? <laughs> yeah. yeah. So. Yeah, they're so, trying, yeah. whatever. Yeah, so the, many mistakes made, really just to... Yeah, uh, it, although, you know, if we go back into the racism a bit, it, it's interesting watching this movie and you know, knowing a bit about how it was made, because it's filmed entirely, well, not entirely, but almost entirely in Morocco. Right. Which is uh, pretty far away from Kafiristan. It's not even on the right continent, so... <laughs> so it's... It's interesting if you know a little bit about that entire huge region of the world, which we white people are notorious for not knowing much about. Um, you know, like if you're you're watching these these extras in the movie, uh, the Billy Fish character is talking in Urdu mm -hmm. to them, but they're responding in Arabic because mm -hmm. they're just extras, just extras from around Morocco. Right. And, uh, like, when they're praising the idols and they're singing, they're clearly saying Allah. Mm -hmm. But this is supposed to be... Well, Kafiristan was populated by uh, people who worship, like, a, a very ancient form of... Or offshoot of um, Hindu. Right. And uh, then they converted to uh, Islam around the turn of the century. When, Which uh, century? Uh, the... Uh, 19th century. 19th century. Or 18th, 20th century. 20th century. Sorry. Okay, so it would have... 1900. It would have post-dated the, post the, story. the story. Yeah. So they wouldn't have been yeah. Arabic yet. Yeah, they would not have been Arabic yet. Now, see, for me... Uh, just well, no, not they, Arabic. They would not have been they would Islamic. Have not have been Islamic. Muslim. Sorry, because, I didn't mean yeah. Arabic. Yeah, Islamic. they wouldn't, they wouldn't have converted That's yet. It. This, this, uh, by the way, dear listeners, Kafiristan it no longer, well, no longer exists, technically. It did exist? It did exist. It was a real place. It's... Now called, it's the Nuristani state of uh, Afghanistan. Okay. Mostly. Yeah. When uh, Pakistan and Afghanistan, they, when they're the that shared border was sure. being figured out, uh, Kafiristan was mostly wound up in Afghanistan territory, but one city wound up on the other side. Okay. So you can actually still, you know, it's it's yeah. that literally that state of. Okay. Um, and uh, r lately, in the last few years, it's been in the news because it's like a hotbed of, mm -hmm. of Daesh and ISIS and uh, Taliban because that's one of the regions that the U.S. pulled out of because it was really hard to control because it's a it's, pain in the ass to get to. It's in the middle of nowhere. It's in the middle of nowhere. It's the middle of nowhere. It's defined by like four rivers and a bunch of mountains. Right. So it's super remote. But Getting there is not an easy task. Yeah, so in Kipling's time and before that, like an English person would wind up in there like once every couple hundred years, and right. that was about it. That's all they knew about. What was interesting for me is that I happen to uh, have had an acquaintance, uh, uh, Professor M. A. R. Barker, mm -hmm. um, who passed away in 2012. But he uh, was a scholar and poet in those regions. He traveled cool. extensively in those regions. He was a published po poet in Urdu and Hindi. Um, and he spent many, many years in those areas. And so I have some passing acquaintance from speaking with him about stuff. And one of the things that they depicted in the show, or in the movie, was uh, uh, Sean Connery sitting on a chair, and the women are are dancing. Oh, it, yeah. wasn't, it was before that even. It was just when they first arrived, and the women were like doing some kind of dance on their knees or something like that. And what I remember Barker telling me were two things. And one of them was that um, guesting, it's a guesting culture. If you come mm -hmm. into a place, it's, it's, it's their 
it's their honor and dignity on the line if they don't treat you as best they possibly can with the best foods and the mm-hmm. best everything and protect you. If another if another tribe comes and tries to steal you because they do that to gain honor, they'll steal another tribe's guests, they'll fight to the death to prevent you from being taken. But if you are taken, you are now a guest of that other tribe and they will treat you with great dignity. Mm-hmm. The other thing is you cannot talk to or look at or interact with the women at all. Yeah. Period. And when Barker wanted to interview the women uh, in the northern Afghani mountains near this area, what he had to arrange by talking to the men was that they would put the women in a tent. Barker would sit in front of the tent facing away from it at the men. He would ask the men a question. The men would repeat the question into the tent over his head. Mm-hmm. The women would answer. He would pre- Barker would pretend not to hear it. Mm-hmm. And then the men would tell him the answer. Huh. And so if he wanted to know how do you take care of the cows or how do you gather textiles for, for sewing or is there a, f- a female version of this word that only men use, he had to ask the men, the men would ask the women, the women would tell the men, the men would tell him. Wow. And so you'd never see a bunch of women in front of a man. Right. Even under these guesting circumstances. Oh, yeah, yeah. And I'm sure there's there's ton of yeah. cultural faux pas that I don't even know about because, you know, just from... Filming in Morocco, you know, they were oh, just, yeah, and they you know, were, they weren't even it's there, like, this yeah. is, this is exotic enough. This is fine. We'll, well just swap out. Nobody will know. Yes. Nobody will know. Nobody, Cultures nobody. fine. Nobody's going to get it. Well, <laughs> it I doesn't was, matter. I was blown away by the sheer numbers of extras. I mean, oh, yeah. again, they were paying them probably a penny a day, um, but there were hundreds and hundreds of people, a lot of whom went to the length of shaving their head just to be in this film, and why not? Oh, yeah. yeah. There's no so, guarantee yeah. they were paying them a penny a day. They don't right. pay... Well, they were probably they, actually paying... Extra, extras in America, they pay with food. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. You know, that's true. But, you know, they could pay them cheaply and just make their year, you know, yeah, I'm sure. Yeah, exactly. Although, uh, where they did a lot of the filming was a city uh, named Warzat. Warzat? Warzat? Warzat, I think. Warzat. <laughs> it, it has a bizarre spelling that starts sure. with an O. But it's uh, basically the Hollywood of Morocco. Oh. So it a ton of movies have been filmed there, including like Gladiator, where the uh, arena scene was shot. Oh, you're not entertained! Uh, Lawrence of Arabia, of course, was there. Uh, Living Daylights, Last Temptation of Christ, The Mummy, Kingdom of Heaven, Kandun, uh Game of Thrones was there. For, and then, and then yeah. you and I were discussing yeah. the connection yeah. with Time Bandits. With Time Bandits, yeah. Although I don't know if specifically Time Bandits filmed there. I think they found a different Moroccan city to film in. But uh, but yeah, with Sean Connery showing up in Time Bandits seven years later. As, essentially as, as King Agamemnon in a very similar setting full yeah. of intrigue and stuff. And yeah, it was. I didn't realize the homage that was in Time Bandits that this clearly is to this movie. Which was kind of unintentional because when they wrote the script for Time Bandits, the script was written that the warrior takes his helmet off and uh, reveals that he is... Sean Connery or some other actor that is cheaper to get, but of equal stature, <laughs> or something like that, and and so that was actually written into the script. And for some some strange reason, a script actually found its way into Sean Connery's hands, and Sean Connery liked the idea, and so he contacted Terry Gilliam, and the rest is history. So it wasn't actually intended to be Sean Connery. Sean Connery came to them and said, "Hey, yep. I would like to play this role that you obviously want me for." 
I've got but, experience. Yeah. But anyway, going back to Warzazat, um, there is a movie studio there. It's called Atlas Studios, and it is huh. one of the largest movie studios in the world uh, in terms of land area. Wow. <laughs> it is huge. Wow. Yeah. So you're saying that Sahara is just a back lot. Yeah, pretty much. Okay. Yeah, right. it's, it's, I didn't realize it's that. It's huge. It's, it's just a backlog. Yeah, it is. It's uh, it's all artificial. <laughs> yeah, totally. Um, it's true. It, it's all done with mirrors. It's, it's all been it's all been created just for film. Oh, speaking of, speaking of which, that uh, matte painting of the of the city on top yes. of the rock, the holy city, that was done in six hours. Huh. <laughs> like the the artist, they they sent it to the artist, and the artist goes, "Okay, give me like till noon." You know, there you go. Here's your matte painting. Wow. And it do, do we know who the artist was? Oh, I wrote no, that down. I notable, I'm just challenging your 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 capacious notes. I oh, um, I've got it in here. You've got it. Uh, Count on Melissa. It'll show up to have it's all there. the details. Yeah, it's uh, Albert Whitlock. Albert Whitlock. Mm -hmm. Albert Whitlock. Six mm -hmm. hours to paint a holy city. Yeah, yeah, just on a map. Yep. Out of thin air. And also, uh, since I've got the names up here, uh, Karum Ben Bue who is the ancient little well, yeah, priest. Yeah, yeah. The, the very, very wizened little priest. Needs dentures, yes. Yes. Uh, he was 103 years old. What? He really was 103 years old. That was 103 years... He looked damn good for 103. Yeah, right? He was getting around pretty well. It, he was the night watchman at a neighboring olive plantation. And so uh, John director John Houston uh, happened upon him one day, and he, he went... You, you're perfect, huh. and and so they cast him. I wonder if him. he's been in anything lately. <laughs> I I did tr I did search on the internet. I couldn't figure out how long he left after that. But uh, so so he agreed to be in the movie. I'm sure he's done a porn film since then. Oh, good chance. Yeah. Hmm. Maybe. I mean, he's seen Moroccan really porn is a big is a big industry. <laughs> yeah, the porn actually especially has the women in the right 70s. Out in front of him. Yep. But uh, anyway, he he took the job, and um, after a couple days of filming, he kept falling asleep on set, and they found out he was still keeping his night job <laughs> and working both day well, and it's night. It's not like you can walk away from a job like that. And so they had to they had to explain to it. We, we pay you. We, right. We're going to pay you enough to, that you can quit the you, other job. You can it's live fine. the rest of your life. You're fine. We'll pay your next month's rent. Yeah, he was born in like 1871. Wow. Yeah. He so he, he remembered incredible. when the actual events happened. That's right. Yes. <laughs> were there actual yeah, events? Were there actual events? He would have remembered them. He would wow. have remembered them. And when he saw the footage of the movie, he declared, well, I'm going to live forever then. <laughs> Well, and he's not wrong, yeah, really. Yeah, just I just it. saw him. There yeah. he was. And there he was. Huh. So, so yeah. So, yeah. now, a uh, few interesting things just in the credits that I had forgotten. And I had seen this film before, but it's been quite some time. Forgot it was a John Huston film. Yeah, and we've, we've done John Huston movies on here before because we have done the Maltese Falcon. Yep. Mm-hmm. And, and we uh, will do them again. But think about that. We've done the Maltese Falcon, which was a 1930s film. Yep. And this is a 1970s, 1970s film. Yeah. Also by John Huston. Yeah, John Huston had a long career, and he was still making movies into the 80s. Mm -hmm. um, and and of course, he's part of this uh, you know grand Hollywood family where yeah. his father was Walter Huston, the great character actor. Then he came along and he did acting and directing, and now his uh, daughter Angelica Houston is mm -hmm. a well-respected actress, and right. so it's this grand aristocracy of Hollywood. Yeah. Their their house must have a lot of hardware in it. Yeah, really. Just just saying, uh, just you know. Yeah. But uh, and then the costume designer again, another Edith. very long 
long-lived, I mean, icon of Hollywood was Edith Head. Edith yeah. Head. Well, mm-hmm. I, I noted her name when it popped up because I'm not a movie aficionado, mm-hmm. and yet her name popped up, and I'm like, I know that name. Yeah, and so she's... you got to be pretty famous if I know who you are. And it's interesting because you know she's known for kind of her glitz and glamour. Design. Yeah, there were there were a lot of films where she didn't do all the costume design. She just did the gowns yeah. for the lead actresses. And and the the actresses walk on. And you go, oh wow, look at her clothes. Yeah, and it's interesting seeing her work on something like this, where mm-hmm. it's uh, primarily you know making sure the British uniforms are right, and then all these extras. If you would like to know what Edith Head was like, though. Yeah. It's very easy. You simply need to watch The Incredibles. Yes, she's Edna Mode. Because is Edna, Edna Mode is based on Edith Head. Mm-hmm. The appearance no of Ed- Edna Mode is very much the appearance of Edith Head, yeah. who was a goth before they even knew such things were possible. Yeah, totally. Um, and she spoke with the voice of Brad Bird. Yes, mm-hmm. she did. So, uh, she did. So, listeners, if you're like, well, I, I'd like to know what this Edith Head is like. Just go watch The Incredibles, uh, mm-hmm. and you'll know. And and even if you don't want to know what Edith Head was like, go watch The Incredibles. Well, yes. Because yeah. it's a movie that needs to be watched. Oh, indeed. It has less racism, too. There's not, <laughs> as, there's not as much racism... Not as much racism. ...in The Incredibles as the man who would be king. Now, I mean, it's fair... It, it's, it's that difficult thing of the source mm-hmm. material... Mm-hmm. is racist. Right. Rudyard Kipling yeah. was unquestionably racist because he was very much an English nationalist. He was very much of the opinion that the English being in India was helping those mm-hmm. people, mm-hmm. was oh, civilizing so. them. And uh, so you, you kind of... He, this is literally saying, the white man savior trope. Like, yeah, literally. No, yeah, right, yeah. <laughs> Just, if, and if, if there's a... A ground zero for this trope, and it all it all would have worked had had he not gotten carried away. Well, and then there's the question. I it's an open question. I don't know this, but um, there's that sniff of miscegenation uh, in there where he Mm -hmm. is attracted to one of the women uh, who's not white, and because of that, everything falls apart. It's 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 also that he's sort of broken that line. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know if that's intentional or, or not. Uh, he might have just been going for the, uh, you know, some other aspect of that of that uh, dramatic uh, fall, but certainly it, it's not very tasty that it's like, yeah, you know, yeah. he goes to know. marry a, a dark-skinned well, yeah, woman. And, and there, I, there, I think, there I, I think it was think... very much a case of they were he was breaking his own rule. Yeah, he. That's what I mean. I they, don't know they, if it's they had, that they had or... established rules. Yeah. He breaks a rule, and he pays the price for breaking right. that rule. Yeah, and I don't think Kipling was necessarily against miscegenation. Yeah. Or, or and he, I don't know. Yeah, he because um, if I remember right, like in his youth, he fell in love with a woman in Tokyo, ah. and, uh, but that didn't go well. But he, I. I yeah. I've never got a sense from reading his stories he was particularly against that. I'm I'm sure he came into contact with yeah. it when he was And I didn't in I didn't know either, so yeah. it's Yeah. yeah. But to he, wonder. You know, in a lot of other ways he was very mm-hmm. much conservative in other mm-hmm. ways. So I so, mean, that's my amateur opinion on that. <laughs> uh, we have to get you have a lot more notes to get through I got Melissa. Oh, yeah. so I, we oh, should, I yeah. only got a bunch. No, yeah, just tell me got... to shut up. That's fine. Oh no, 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 no. You're you're on here for a reason. You got My my to... job is to redirect. That's my job. <laughs> yeah. To go, oh, more notes to Melissa. So this is Sean Connery's favorite role that he's Sean ever done Connery's in the history role. of everything. 
So uh, he he apparently had just a grand time making this movie. And I, I, I like the way yeah. he was depicted as not being the brains of the operation. There oh, was yeah. a little bit of that, too, where he decided to go off on his own, and he he didn't quite have the mental capacity for it. Mm-hmm. And, like, and they reemphasize that every time they had Michael Caine's character do his math for him. Yeah. You know, it's like, and, and oh, this ju- is the And brains. every time it was, it was always Michael Caine's plan. Yeah. Yes, that's right. And and the minute that Connery goes off script, yeah. As soon as Connery stops listening to Kane, as soon as Connery yep. stops remembering that Kane is the brains of the outfit and that he should do what Kane says, yep. is is when everything is lost. And that makes mm-hmm. me curious about the characters themselves if there was a class divide in the original characters where where one is supposed, where Michael Caine's character is supposed to be a higher class than the other fellow, and so again, it's that class uh, hubris. I don't. I don't remember. know. I don't, I don't know. Yeah. Don't I've read the that. original story. It makes but, me curious to yeah. look at it. That's all. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Then again, you know, we Americans are bad at sniffing that sort of thing out too. The right. British. There could have, there could have been hints. Runs deep. <laughs> there could have been hints in the in the text that we just didn't catch. Yeah. Right. Also, you know, Masons. Uh, yeah, <laughs> Freemasonry everywhere. Yep. <laughs> uh, so in the original short story, you know, since we kind of veered into this, um, the the movie does vary a little bit from the story in that, uh, like, the narrator is not specifically Kipling. Right. You know, the the movie added that layer. Mm-hmm. You know, Kipling's just the the person who gets told this story, and and therefore. But why not have it be Kipling? Why not have it be Kipling? So there's also an angle where uh, Billy Fish, well, Billy Fish isn't necessarily the translator in the story because uh, the two gentlemen, the uh, Peachy and Daniel, um, I think it's Daniel actually knows the language and is able to speak directly to. Really, the the people of the region, but um, uh, the and the in Billy Fish, I think, like his station in life was slightly different. Like he still served the British, but in like a different capacity. So that dynamic was different. Hmm. But I think they changed it around for the movie, so there were fewer subtitles on screen, or they didn't have to use subtitles at all. Right. So. Um, it just kind of. It, it also saved. That, it also saved from having the protagonists act as translators because that would have gotten yeah. really awkward. What did you right. just say? I just said this. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Right. So it, it was just less. Yeah. Cumbersome that way, and I, th- I think it kind of serves the the movie well because it kind of places a wall between them and the culture. Yeah. So it, it, did it do really that. does isolate. Mm-hmm. Isolate them nicely, which mm-hmm. does serve the story on screen. Um. That is true. So, uh, Shakira Kane is in the movie. Yeah, she is the I, I didn't Roxanne. realize. I didn't realize that she was a performer back then. I, I, mm-hmm. I thought she was Brazilian and not Indian. Nope. But and it, she's it was she's not Shakira. Brazilian either. Yeah. So uh, yeah. she's from French Guiana. Aha. Yes. So Shakira Kane, uh, interesting lady. Uh, she was born in French Guiana, and in the sixties, uh, she hit nineteen years old. Um, upon the advice of a friend, she entered a beauty contest. Oh, okay. I thought she hit 19 upon the advice of a friend. Because yes. most friends would advise you to skip right over that one. Yeah. They, but it's a tough year. Kind of it's a tough really year. Tough. It really is. Yeah. yeah that's so like she not entered, quite adult. entered yeah. a beauty contest. She entered a beauty contest, and lo and behold, she began. She won okay. the Miss Guiana title. So, like, Miss America only for Guiana. Right. Um, and she had. She was the daughter of a dressmaker, so she had these great 
uh, aspirations to become a fashion designer. So she went, hmm, maybe I can leverage this. So as the winner of Miss Guiana, she went to London to compete in the Miss World contest mm-hmm. of 1967. And uh, that year was really interesting because the top, the, the women who took the top three awards were all from South American countries. Hmm. So the winner was from Peru. I can't remember what country the second place winner was, but uh, Shakira won third. So after this, she uh, said, well, you know, this modeling thing seems to be working. I'll just stay in London mm-hmm. and see how that goes. And so she started getting work. And uh, meanwhile, Michael Caine is watching TV somewhere. And he sees a Maxwell House commercial. And he sees the most beautiful woman he ever saw in his life. And he just is, like, dazzled with this young lady. Cool, blimey. And so he, find, he finds out that she was the, she's Miss Guiana. And uh, he, he, like, talks to friends and trying to fit. And he's, like, set to, like, fr- fly to South America to find <laughs> this woman. And she's a quarter mile away across and, town. <laughs> One mile. <laughs> one mile away. She's right. living in London. He finds out... Fr- he talks to enough friends that one of them goes, yeah, she lives, like, down there. Mm-hmm. Here's her phone number. <laughs> and so... So the two of them meet, and they hit it off, and they're still married. This what? Day. They are still together. They got married in 1973, so two years before this movie, and they are still together. So if you go to Shakira's Wikipedia page, there is a totally adorable vacation shot from the two of them that's like three years old. And they're like in Venice and they're, oh, they're so cute. Wow. They're like, they look like a couple of retirees on vacation. And That's a better story than the movie we just watched. Yeah, totally. I love that story. Yeah, they're just adorable. Because so, Michael Caine, he's got this this rogue you know, well, and he attitude, did. yeah. And and he definitely, during the, like the 60s when he started yeah, getting yeah. work, he definitely was, because he was drinking, you know, like right. a bottle of vodka every day and smoking 80 cigarettes and, you know, being kind of one of the bad boys of the 60s. And she just sort of, straightened him out and yeah, there you go. Yeah, straightened him out and wow. he's still with us today. That's a and better uh, story than the movie. Yeah. I really like that yeah. story. And, and, yeah, and, and, so, and, and, and uh, unusual for our podcast in that there yeah. are no tragic deaths that yeah. have to go along with these these two individuals, their careers. Do you tend to kill so people for her, the podcast? Yeah, we try. Oh, okay. yeah, 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 totally. Yeah. By the way, Bob, uh, well, never mind. <laughs> yeah. We'll tell you once we're done recording. <laughs> we, we got a deal to make with you. Yeah. So, Shakira's involvement in this movie specifically, um, the role of Roxanne, when this movie started actually filming, that role had not been cast. Oh. Um, there was some talk about getting Roald Dahl's daughter, Tessa Dahl, to play... To play Roxanne, which is interesting because she's white. Yeah, that wouldn't slow him down. I know, I know, but we, uh, we'd be talking about the inherent racism of a brown face if she right. Done that. Yeah. And and so, um, it, that those discussions apparently went so far that she started losing weight and like she got her teeth capped and everything, uh, but then it, huh. the deal didn't go through. So production had started, and. There was a dinner where, like, all the cast members were there, and somebody had asked John Houston, it's like, okay, so who's going to play Roxanne? And he goes, I, I don't know. And then, like, all heads turn, and Shakira walks into the room. Hmm. And everybody's like, oh, there she is. Michael Caine's wife, of course. Why didn't we... She, she's even of Indian descent. Right. Yeah. <laughs> like, Which even, is clear. Yeah. Yeah. So it's like she's actually... Huh. Appropriate to put into this movie. That's cool. <laughs> Unlike a lot of the the Moroccan extras. <laughs> <laughs> 
So, yeah. I, I, I like the fact that she had this completely Western name. It's like, how? No one said. Well, it's. The name is Rotten Sand. How did she get that name out here? It's an Indian name that got adopted. Okay. So you're saying it started as an Indian name and it. Well, it's not Indian name, but it's the wife of Alexander the Great. It was the wife of Alexander, and since Alexander was the last Uh, white person that was in this region, and they still revere him as sort of a god, that Mm -hmm. naming somebody Roxanne is, is like a. An honoring the this this legend. Well, yeah. See, I, I didn't know that about Alexander, and I thought this was some kind of Kipling-esque allusion to uh, Don Quixote. No, not Don Quixote. Um, because uh, that was Dulcinea. No, they, I'm. Uh, what am I thinking of? Uh, Roxanne. Roxanne and Christian and uh, <laughs> uh, what's the? I did it. Uh, oh, I know what you're talking about, and I'm lo- and I can't. Remember it uh, either Cyrano de Bergerac. Yes, I thought it was yes, a, yes, yes. A, a, an allusion to Cyrano de Bergerac, and I was like, "What's the allusion aside from her name? Is there something Cyrenaic about this movie?" And there wasn't. There was no balcony, no. Uh, nothing like that. And I don't know whether that's honestly. Probably not. I think it probably is historically. No, if it's if it's directly a link back to Alexander himself, then I can see where they'd get that. But from. I don't yeah. know if that's historically accurate for that region, or if that Kipling just used. Oh, that. I don't think it was historically yeah. accurate at all. Okay. It was just Kipling. Going. It was just Kipling. I think it was Kipling's way of like, like putting, putting the Masonic yeah, link yeah. into the story yeah. and and bringing all these threads together. Well, I thought it was interesting. interesting. They were they were talking about uh, this, the the city name was like Sikandar in the movie in the mm-hmm. movie and in Afghanistan you have the the city of Kandahar, mm-hmm. which is Alexander. Right. You know, uh, again, just throughout the ages, it's gotten modified. So right. I thought that was an interesting connection. Yeah, it's fascinating stuff. So it's. Um, going back to actually, actually putting Indian people in this movie, um, or at least people from the region, uh, Saeed Jaffrey, who was the guy who played Billy Fish, is also an Indian actor. He's from the Punjabi territory. Mm-hmm. And so he, you know, came up through uh, acting in Indian radio and then eventually in the Indian um, film industries. But you know, kind of really made its name acting in like Richard Attenborough movies, and you know, huh. whenever whenever you need an Indian person in an sure. English speaking movie, he seems to be a pretty good go to. Mm-hmm. So he was also in Gandhi, which was a few years later, and and uh, I think he was in Passage to India. I, I always like seeing him in movies. He has a nice charisma to him. So yeah, it's yeah. Like, oh yay! I think it's uh, isn't it Richard Richard Attenborough? Isn't he isn't he ninety this year? Uh, I think so. I think so. I think I just He's pretty was, old. I think I was just watching a program on the BBC uh, where they had Richard Attenborough and they were bringing in people, and it was kind mm-hmm. of a "this is your life" kind of a thing. Mm-hmm. So yeah, very interesting. Yeah, interesting stuff. And then he so, died. Eh. I think he's is he. No, I think he's. He might die around. before this podcast. That's is true. Could we happen. shouldn't say and anything. Then you would continue really with your shouldn't. theme of killing off people for yeah, your podcast. Just, yeah. God, screw that. <laughs> oh whatever he's not making movies so anyway. uh let's see what else, what else i actually we killed about. we killed off the 103 year old guy because he he probably oh yeah i'm he's pretty sure, I'm sure he hasn't made he's probably pretty yeah. sure because it's been another 40 years so i would imagine Edinburgh, you're safe you're safe yeah. he died in obscurity yeah or he's probably Morocco. still watching those olive he trees. died watching olives yeah, yeah. Probably. He could have died making I mean, one of those porn mil- movies. So well, you yeah, know true. those Moroccan Maybe, yeah. porn movies. True. So let's see. Um, 
I was looking up the biography information for both Michael Caine and uh, and Sean Connery today, and it was it just became very interesting to me because um, they're both, it, even though like Michael Caine has this kind of working man uh, sort of air to him and and his whole film career and. Uh, Sean Connery's got the suave near of an air thing. They both came from very similar backgrounds. Um, like they were both sons of of um, uh, chore ladies, maids, uh, cleaning women, um, people of that profession. Whatever cleaning women, I think is probably okay. There was a term for it that was used in Wikipedia. It's like ah. I don't know that word. <laughs> char, ah. char woman, char woman, char woman, char woman. Apparently, it means. It's like chore woman only chore woman. Ah, it's a I British see. thing. It's a British sure. thing. But um, and then like yeah, you know, very very working class. Um, so Michael Caine um, grew up very much working class, and uh, he left school at fifteen to go find work, and then he eventually uh, went off to fight in the Korean War, and when he hmm. came back, the theater called to him, so he became an assistant stage manager, hmm. and then he got an agent, and then he started acting. Well, his name at the time was Maurice Joseph Micklewhite, which... That one goes across the banner. It goes across the marquee. Run into the other. Right, right. Yeah. And so he, he looked across the street and saw like a, a theater showing the Kane mutiny, so... Yeah. I'll just be called Michael Caine. And uh, the rest is history. So um, <laughs> he only officially changed his name to Michael Caine, like legally, in 2016. Huh. Because he got tired of being stopped in airports. Huh. <laughs> because his ID didn't match <laughs> yeah. his stage name. Huh. How about that? Funny that. So um, he started uh, doing a lot of television work and eventually he got cast in a movie called Zulu, which is a phenomenal film by the way huh. um, it's it's about the uh, downfall of the british army and at the you know at the uh the onslaught boar, of the boar zulu. wars what was that was it the boer wars is that the zulu wars or maybe yeah, it's just the zulu wars anyway zulu, zulu wars the movie's in 1964 i know that mm -hmm. part <laughs> so okay. uh so like the next year michael kane does the Chris file which kind of launches him into stardom which is this great uh kind of spy thriller it's mm -hmm. got this weird ass sci-fi ending and i love it and then he did a movie called Alfie in 1966, which Oscar um, nominated. Which is, bing, Oscar What's nomination. What's it all about, yeah. Alfie? <laughs> yeah, mm -hmm. precisely. And uh, you know, and he's had a very solid career since. Oh yeah, you know, pretty much hasn't stopped working since then. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's a working British actor, which means he'll take just about any role that yep. you pay him for. And he never phones it in, and so he's yeah. just reliable. He's been in bad movies, but he's never been bad in them. Yeah, yeah. And so, like, well. the first the first Oscar he won was for uh, Hannah and Her Sisters. Yep. And that year, at the Oscar ceremony, he wasn't able to attend because he was making Jaws the Revenge. Ooh, <laughs> he was in some bad movies. Yes. Oh, yeah. oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Jaws the Revenge is terrible. But the, the beauty... I, I can't. I should have written down the quote he had about doing Jaws: The Revenge. He goes. The quote was, "I've never seen Jaws: The Revenge. I understand it's terrible, but I've seen the house it bought, and it's very nice." Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and for that, that is why we love him. Except he said it as Michael Caine, which made it far more charming. Caine is one of three actors who has been nominated for 
an Oscar in five consecutive decades. Cool. So uh, the other people on that list are Sir Lawrence Olivier and Meryl Streep. Uh-huh. Uh, he was knighted in 2000. Just like Sean Connery was. Sean Connery. Same year, they they got knighted. And they're mm-hmm. they're pretty good friends, as I recall. Yeah, they're very good yeah. friends. Um, this is one of only two movies that they starred in together. The other one was only a couple years after this, and it was called A Bridge Too Far. And I haven't oh, seen yeah. that. Oh, yeah. No, that's a very, very well-known one. Yeah, I've... I've People talk fondly of it, and I just haven't seen it yet. And it's yet. another film featuring both actors that has something to do with a bridge. Mm-hmm. So... Back in the 60s, I, I love this story about Michael Caine. Back in the 60s, when he was super duper broke, um, he was roommates with Terrence Stamp, who was also very early in his career. And so, if you can imagine an apartment that contained both Terrence Stamp and Michael Caine, <laughs> that is a thing that actually happened. And then they both got kicked out of that apartment. <laughs> so, Michael Caine went to couch surf at his friend John Barry's place. Wow. John Barry being the guy who composed the music for the James Bond movies. And so because he was couch surfing at John Barry's house, he was the first person to hear the Goldfinger theme. Huh. Wow. <laughs> so I love that. And and also at some point he was roommates with Vidal Sassoon, so he could really pick his roommates. Wow. Clearly. See, I was just looking to see, and I think, as far as I can tell, he's the only British actor who did not appear in any of the Harry Potter movies. Uh, that's possibly Along true. with Sean Along Connery. With Along John with Connery. Sean There's Connery. There's another think, similarity between yeah, the two of them. Yeah, because they're not in the Harry Potter movies. Probably they were asked. <laughs> yeah, oh, probably. And the only reason he would have said no is because he was already working on something else at the time. Probably. Mm-hmm. So, Sean Connery... Similarly modest upbringing, you know, uh, son of a cleaning later lady and a truck driver. Uh, he again, I think he left school to work just like Kane did, and he wound up doing a bunch of odd jobs, you know, just a little bit of everything. Whether it was just like I can't remember, like driving trucks and you know, serving uh, just weird odd jobs, including bodybuilder. So hmm. if you look for bodybuilding photos of a very young Sean Connery in the internet. You will find them. If you look for bodybuilding photos of me on the internet, you will not find them. Mm. Another thing you have in common I, with Sean Connery. That's right. So. I've never done any bodybuilding at all. <laughs> now, now, your listeners would be surprised because I sound like I'm a bodybuilder, but actually, yeah, I'm in true. terrible shape. So, it Also true. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Mm-hmm. So, uh, Connery, through, I don't know, bodybuilding contacts, I don't know, he eventually started acting. He started out in TV, and then... Eventually, he wound up being cast as James Bond. James Bond. And uh, Bond. The, the story about him being cast is like Albert Broccoli, who was a producer of the Bond movies, was like, eh, I that don't know kid about had to this. Get picked on in school. Yeah, he was like, I don't know about this guy. And his wife was like, Yes. <laughs> and, and if he, you ever want to sleep with me again, you're going to put him in sh- in swimming yes. trunks and have him walk out because of the Because you want right? me to be thinking about him. That's right. Right. And so Ian Fleming was also like, oh, I don't know about this guy. Because he was kind of this uncouth sort of, you know, lower class guy, very much Mm -hmm. like Michael Caine presented himself as. And uh, Ian Fleming's like, "Uh, I don't know. And his girlfriend at the time was like, yes. (laughs) (laughs) So what happened was the director of Dr. No, uh, Terrence Young, basically took Sean Connery under his wing and, and like 
offset was like taking him to dinners and stuff and like training him how to to walk and how to talk and be suave oh, and right, debonair yeah. so, just so, coach and coach so in the future coach. there's a version of Pygmalion featuring Sean Connery as as, as, as I'm excited as by that Eliza Doolittle. as Eliza yeah. Doolittle I, oh, I want that musical we, oh, oh yeah, yeah. It, that says fringe written all over it yeah, so so he's <laughs> he's been riding the wave of James Bond ever since. He was in seven Bond films, and you yep. know we we rightly love him for that. So yeah, and uh, and still considered the quintessential Bond. Yeah. So he, oh yeah, yeah. Um, he uh, got married briefly to an actress named Dan Silento in 1962. They had a son named Jason Connery, uh, and then um, they divorced a few years later. But then in 1975. Sean Connery uh, married Micheline Rokeburn, I think is how you pronounce it. I don't I'm speak not sure. French. They're still married. Ah. So yet another one of those marriages that actually, that actually lasts, lasts, despite being married to James Bond. So yeah. Um, see, I always think when, whenever George Clooney breaks up with a woman, I always see the headline of you know. So and so woman decides to sleep with uglier men for the rest of her life. You know, that's just the decision she made. <laughs> yeah, sure, it was her decision. Anyway. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, you know yeah. what? I, there, there, I, I, I can spout. There's a lot of trivia so about trivia. this movie, and unfortunately, we are running out of time. Oh, yeah. Oh, totally. no. Which means we are going to need to get to final thoughts. Mm -hmm. uh, so, Melissa, uh, we'll just. Uh, what, what, what from your vast repository of trivia? I mean, we really ought to just put a trivia page up <laughs> on every single one of these episodes for all the stuff that you didn't get to, um, with the exception of Josie and the Pussycats, where there was about five pieces of trivia about the movie. But, but anyway. We have plenty of things to talk about anyway. Yeah. So, uh, what's your final thought about The Man Who Would Be King? Okay, so Rudyard Kipling, when he was young uh he he went traveling to the united states and uh as one of his first acts in the united states he he went to mark twain's house and knocked on the door just totally unannounced without even a thought in his head uh that mark twain might have better things to do but apparently mark twain was home and they had a nice conversation and uh mark twain did talk to him about uh writing a sequel to tom sawyer and huh. uh, Twain told him the sequel was uh, going to end with either Tom Sawyer becoming uh, elected to Congress or he would wind up dead. Neither of those things happened. Yep. Although if the story had both, that would have some real gravitas where he becomes so. elected to Congress yeah. and then is dead. I, I'm fond of Mark Twain, but gravitas <laughs> was not one of his uh, no, no, not one of his, his things. It is interesting, though, because they were both... Uh, Possibly unintentionally racist writers, but racist writers. Um, you know, I think Twain was trying with uh, Huck Finn, but oh, yeah. it was still racist. Oh, yeah. Um, you know. It, it was just less racist than everybody else. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Precisely. Um, you know, and you can... you can, well, Progressive anyway, yeah. in its own way, in its own time frame. Correct. But, you know, we can... Baby steps. Yeah, we can... You, you can say, what what would what would he have written a hundred years later? Right. Um, yeah. And yeah. anyway, and it's different different conversation. Uh, oh. Kipling also, also uh, visited uh, Yellowstone National Park while yeah. he was in America. Oh, yes, very that. much. And uh, he, he lived in Vermont for a time. For No, and, not Vermont. Virginia. I'm sorry. Another V state. But yes, he he lived for quite a long. He he actually lived very little of his life in India. Hmm. <laughs> he was like born and raised in India, and then uh, wound up in the UK, and then wound up in America, and then uh, it traveled the world. But 
See, everything I know about Kipling comes from Rocky and Bullwinkle. <laughs> hey, Bullwinkle, you ever read Kip? No, I just, hey, Bullwinkle, you ever tried Kipling? I don't know, Rocky. Oh, I can't say that. It's a pun. <laughs> they got that on the air. Do you, oh, that's right. Wow. Hey, Bullwinkle, do you like Kipling? Well, I don't know, Rock. I never tried. Oh, I can't say that. That's That was the exchange. <laughs> uh, all right, Bob. Uh, how about your final thoughts on The Man Who Would Be King? Uh, well, it has a 96% rating from Rotten Tomatoes, which is a pretty astonishing thing because they're not handing out percentage points uh, hand yeah. over fist there. Yeah. Um, I, uh, I I think it... it was cinematographically that if that's a word I'm trying to make an adjective out of that uh, cinematographically interesting uh, to me uh, I I'm a big fan of cinematography and film and 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 production and well being a photographer you're very interested in that yeah and I mean I, I watch things like the, the Wachowski's uh, Sense Eight mm-hmm. and I don't need the, the sound on I just want to see what they do with their cameras because right. they're crazy good. Uh, whoever, whoever's doing their cinematography for them is a, just a brilliant person. And you'd think I'd know that, but I don't. Uh, and so cinematographically, <laughs> I really liked it. I really wish they'd had better film because it all had that kind of washed out, you know, our colors are doing the mm-hmm. best they can. Uh, well, it was, it was I, also uh, very old. We watched it on DVD. And while the DVD was actually one of the old flipper DVDs... Yeah, where, it was actually not they, all on a single side. Yeah, yeah, so it was actually doing a pretty good job of uh, not being... Uh, artifacted. Right. Yeah, yeah, so, yeah, because they, were, they didn't compress the video all that much, um, I'm sure the restoration left something to be desired. I would, yeah, I, I that to me is probably not a very well restored yeah. uh, version of The Man Who Would Be King. I, made, I might be interested to see what it would look like in a better restored version because they, they certainly seem to be trying. They had some, from some very nice shots of the mountain oh, yeah. ranges. And, and it was John Houston. I mean, John yeah. Houston yeah, Jen knew how to shoot a film. So, yeah. uh, you know, and I guess um, my... <laughs> My final thought is just an amusing anecdote that at the very end of the film, dear listeners, uh, there's the bag that, uh, <laughs> that, that that Peachy brings in to Richard Kipling's office, and Bob, as he's watching the film, goes, it better not be his head in that bag. <laughs> and indeed, my friends, it was his head can I in bring, that bag. Can I bring out the trivia about that? Oh, please. Okay, because that, that part was based on a true fucking story <laughs> the original novella was inspired by three uh different stories of different explorers going into this region of the world uh there was the uh explorer james brooke who was an englishman who became the first white raja of sarawak in borneo well uh, there was the travels of an American adventurer named josiah harlan who was granted the title prince of gore in perpetuity for himself and his descendants. G-O-R? G-H-O-R. G-H-O-R. Prince right. of Gore. And I kind of want... That's yeah. a great title, right? It makes you want to marry into the family. Yeah, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. But but the third part um, was about Adolf Schlangentweit. Yeah! He was a German botanist, and he was an explorer, and he was... He was on one of his jaunts, and he was suspected of being a Chinese spy. And so, without the benefit of a trial, he was beheaded in Kashgar uh, by Wali Khan, the Amir of Kashgar. This happened in 1857, so, you know, fresh-ish in memory at that point in time. Uh, The circumstances of his death were not known in Europe until 1859, when Chokhan Velikhenkov... 
visited Kashgar disguised as a merchant and successfully returned to the Russian Empire with the scientist's head. Huh. So, That's awesome. How you, how you get yeah. a head in the world. Right! Hey! And with that, we should close. With that, we should close. And <laughs> I will Lord. tell you I will tell you what the name of our next movie is, except I am forgetting it. And Melissa, remind me. The, the Adventures of Prince Ahmed. I was, I was like, uh, Prince Ahmed was the part I remembered. So, The Adventures of Prince Ahmed is our next movie. We are wow. going to go uh, considerably back in time. Mm-hmm. So, uh, we do hope you will join us for that. It is not a talkie. It is not. It is a silent, uh, and it is the first feature-length animated film. Awesome. Or debatably, there are like two Argentinian films that could predate it, but they're lost now. So that one is the earliest one we have. The first one we we can see. Mm -hmm. You can watch. So uh, do join us for that. That will be a lot of fun. Thank you again, Bob. The show was Bob. Thank you for joining (laughs) us. Thanks for having me on. It was a lot of fun. Is there anything you would like to pimp quickly before we go? You can sing. The, my son is trying out for vilification tennis in the show at the end of February. Mm, so yeah. uh, get your tickets now because he's going to win. Um, <laughs> and uh, just go watch him win vilification tennis because he's funny as fuck. There you awesome. go. Funny as fuck. So thanks a lot. <laughs> this has been uh, the Funny as Fuck podcast, uh, Real Education. Uh, thanks for watching uh, The Man Who Would Be King. We'll catch you next time for The Adventures of Prince Ahmed. <laughs> We hope you enjoyed our film fixation. We'll see you next time on a real education. Dee, dee, 